Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello folks, Ian here. Welcome to episode 80 of the Tiger Gillette Foxtrot podcast. Episode 80, flipping heck, who'd have thought it? I'd never have thought I was going to do 80 episodes when I set out on this little project, but there you go. Um, I think I'm probably going to um take a little break from the podcast for a while and focus i've got a lot going on at the moment uh work-wise and um with various other things i seem to have rather weirdly find myself as a chair of governors from the local primary school and um that seems to be taking up quite a lot of time i'm also doing a lot of voluntary work uh, at the hospice, as I have done for many years, and um, yeah, and business and everything. It's just a lot. I'm just juggling an awful lot at the moment, as well as obviously family life. So I do feel like my head's going to explode sometimes. Um, yeah, I also need to kind of build up a bit of a uh, uh, new cohort of interviewees there's lots of areas of policing i haven't really touched on at all and um, i'd really like to get into horses so this is a major shout out for people who have worked in policing in the following areas so really like to uh, speak to anyone who's been on mounted branch people who have been on uh, deep water search underwater policing whatever i'm sure that's not the proper term for it um marine policing uh, or thames or you know boats anything with boats would be good i'm also really keen to talk to people who have been sios on really high profile complex investigations that have hit the headlines sort of you know those very high profile <coughs> excuse me murders and uh, other other things like that it's always really interesting listening to 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 that stuff so if you if you know anyone who you think would be great on the podcast who's got a really interesting story to tell then please please get in touch my my email address is ian that's i-a-i-n at i-k india kilo hyphen insights.com that's ian at i-k insights.com that would be great. Um, so yeah, I'm going to take a little bit of a break, um, but I will definitely be back. Right, this week I'm talking to a Police and Crime Commissioner, um, Andrew Snowden, the Police and Crime Commissioner for Lancashire. Really interesting conversation with Andrew. Um, as I say in the podcast, I was quite sceptical about Police and Crime Commissioners. And, um, and I still am in many ways, but I've got to say he's definitely one of the i think really good ones i mean i've never worked in lancashire but certainly in terms of what i see what i hear and certainly the things he was saying in our chat i think yeah i definitely see that he's one of the good ones and uh, his passion for policing really comes through 
and a great advocate for policing, really sort of, you know, the little story that he tells about um, tackling the Daily Mail uh, at the end of our chat is sort of indicative, I think, of someone who really wants to stick up for his people. So well done him. Right, I'll stop blabbering and uh, get into the interview. So this week, I've got the great pleasure of speaking to Andrew Snowden, um, who is the Police and Crime Commissioner for Lancashire. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Good morning, Ian. Great to be on the podcast this morning. So nice, bright and early start. So full of beans and raring to go. Good. Excellent. So um, you're now the third, um, you're the first serving Police and Crime Commissioner that we've had on the podcast. Um, previously, I've had Kevin Hurley, um, who was the Police and Crime Commissioner for Surrey. Um, and then I had Ian Johnson, who was the uh, PCC for Gwent, um, both of whom um, were uh, retired chief superintendents who then threw their hat in the ring to become PCCs. So you are officially the first PCC that we've had who is currently serving and a non-ex-police officer, if that makes sense. So I'm glad to be glad to be a first. So uh, <laughs> glad to be leading the way in Lancashire. So excellent. So there's all sorts of things that I want to talk about um, uh, as we go through, but perhaps it might be interesting just to understand what your background was before you became PCC. So what was it that took you along that kind of route, I suppose? Yeah, so my background, I've worked in a number of sectors, construction and industry, infrastructure industries, then through to higher education, um, where I was head of corporate affairs and then associate director at um, the University of Salford. I was also an elected politician through part of that time in a part-time capacity. So I was serving on Lancashire County Council, which is the largest tier one authority within the um, Lancashire constabulary footprint. Um, and I was lead member for highways and transport on that authority as well. So experience of being the elected um, representative of the public in charge of a portfolio area that officers who are the expertise on the operational delivery of those services are mm -hmm. running them. And you are providing that political oversight, governance, priorities, budget scrutiny, public scrutiny. So that's a, a set of responsibilities that I've brought um, and experiences that, that I've, I've brought with me into um, this role, which is very, very similar to, you know, effectively government ministers uh, being elected politicians to oversee the civil service and, and, and department spends and budgets. Um, I was on the approved parliamentary candidates list for the Conservative Party, so I could have chosen to go for parliamentary seats if I'd wanted to. But for me, I really, really enjoyed being the lead member um, mm. at Lancashire County Council um, because you actually have the influence and the budgets and the resources and the position mm. to be able to enact changes in the local area that you live in that the public want to see. And for me, um, that really attracted me to the role of police and crime commissioner. I will not, um, um, I will not try and hide the fact that early on I was a, a skeptic of police and crime commissioners. Um, I think as conservatives, you're always kind of skeptical of more layers of government and and, mm -hmm. and such as that. But the more and more I looked into the role, the more you understood that actually this was born out of the police authorities to make the governance and oversight of policing more efficient and effective. To quicker decisions, more direct accountability, more visibility of a lot of the issues. Mm -hmm. And I looked into it more and more and decided to become the uh, 
um, to apply to become the candidate and, and was um, selected um, by um, a meeting of members in the in the Lancashire area and then elected in um, 2021. Um, so that's the a very, very shortened and sweet story of um, my background and, and, and how I ended up as Police and Crime Commissioner. Yeah, it's really, I'm really impressed with your um, your visibility, I think, nationally. You've got quite a high profile, haven't you? You've been quite um, uh, honest and uh, frank about your views about certain things, which I think is great. Um, and uh, certainly on social media anyway, you've got quite a high profile and, and you certainly uh, come across as someone who is genuinely passionate about um, public safety and very supportive of policing. So, for that, I sort of really take my hat off to you. Um, the the actual role of PCC itself. And you touched on that. You said you'd been skeptical about that um, yourself. And, and I, in my book, I don't know. If I'll send you a copy of it if you haven't already read it. But uh, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, all about the, as I see it, the demise of policing since, well, particularly since two thousand and ten. Sadly. Um, there was an awful lot of scepticism about PCCs, and I've been quite um, honest about my my feelings about that. In that, if you were charitable, you would say that the PCC role was a potentially confused, potentially confused, and already confusing landscape on, of policing. So you've got your forty three four structure. You've got um, all of the, the various interest groups. You've got the Home Office. You've got all these different governance structures around policing. And then to add an additional layer multiplied by 43, potentially, uh, I think, in my view and in the views of, I think, quite a lot of people, was going to confuse things even more. So that's if you were charitable. If you were uncharitable, um, you would take the view um, as many have in policing, that this was a cunning plan put in by David Cameron um, to sort of effectively um, uh, divide policing, divide, sort of a, a kind of a, a divide and conquer kind of strategy to make policing unable to push back against some of the political meddling from the Tory party back in 2010. I mean, what, what's your views on that? Do you think that the PCC structure is broadly helpful to policing or broadly, um, I know you're not going to say unhelpful because you're a PCC, but what are your thoughts on all of that? I mean, again, you, you picked up on it in, in, in your opening comments there. I, I try to be as frank and as open and honest as I can be about, about, about all the different elements of my role and, and involvement in policing, because I think, if you just try and present a rosy picture of the world all the time, then people switch off because that that's that's not not, not the case. I, I don't think it was probably a divide and conquer mood. You know, as, as I said at the start, I think the role was about bringing more visibility and accountability to policing in terms of the public and what they wanted from policing. You know, as with all elected roles, the re, the, the challenge you will get will be you will, will be around who occupies those roles. Effectively, becoming police and crime commissioner, you are a effectively an authority to yourself. Um, you are accountable to the electorate once every four years. And for me, I've tried to throw myself into the role. So I don't profess to be an expert in policing at all. Um, and, and, and no government minister, for example, when they take over a portfolio is rarely an, an institutionalised expert in that field. Mm. I've appointed a deputy, so my deputy, Andy Pratt, um, is a former um, 
um, uh, police superintendent um, and has retired over a period of time, done significant amounts of charitable work, got an MBE for all of his charity work that he's done mm. since retiring. And he provides me with that day to day kind of like sense checkers when I'm looking at things, I can ask him, pick his brains, et cetera. And I think yeah. as a PCC, you need to understand what your role is, which is around governance, oversight and accountability. And you're replacing the police authority. And I think early on, the roles were confused because they were new and they were just thrown out in 2012. And, I, and you know, I think everyone will accept across all parties is not a party political point. Mm. In many places, it got off to a rocky start. And, you know, you know, those relationships between PCCs and chiefs, which needed to be um, to be founded, the people understanding the roles that they were elected into. And I think where the roles have then started to really mature and start to come into their own and just something that I'm trying to do is where you can act in a way that a chief constable can't is in a lot of in sometimes that political pushback you've seen you've seen the work that i've done around degree only entry is actually mm. being that voice and actually lobbying in a way that that mm. would probably compromise potentially a chief constable in terms of get you know mm. you know plunging into that muddy murky pool of politics but also then the the real area which i think actually which is the direction the government's going in is you know, I was on calls with the NHF, my, my equivalent at the NHS yesterday and at the County Council, is the role of police and crime commissioners to be a convening power in, in crime prevention and resilience within communities, as well as the oversight to the police. So I've done a number of um, kind of summits over the last six months, bringing together the different partners with the police around antisocial behaviour, around violence against women and girls. And actually, a lot of those partnerships, partly because of COVID, because everyone everyone was like this, working across screens, looking at each other rather than in person. Mm. A lot of those relationships have fallen by the wayside. A lot of those relationships need a, a visible figure, um, an mm. authority figure, to bring them together. And as I said at the ASB summit, nobody is going to tackle antisocial behaviour in Lancashire except the people in this room. If, it, mm. if it's always down to the police, it's failed as a system. Everybody mm. else needs to play their bit. And I can use funding and apply for funding in other ways. So for me, you know, like I said, to be honest, I was a skeptic early on, um, mm. and, and some of the initial, um, some of the initial tranches, you know, mm. proved that. Um, but as the roles have matured and have some really good people have got into those roles, I think you can demonstrate what a PCC can do, which is to be an added benefit in a way that the police authority couldn't be. Mm. Um, and a lot of it is about, you know, I have a really good relationship with my chief constable. Chris Rowlett, I hold them to account. I hold accountability boards. I push back. I, I ask difficult questions. We our budget rounds are, are 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 very intense around you know the difference between what what the chief wants to look at around risk and threat and what the public are asking of policing, um, and and finding those areas where we can we can find the sweet spot. So there's that side of it, but equally it is that respect. I spend one I spent at least once a week out on the police front line meeting officers um walking the beat going I love going on drugs raids it's my my favorite way to start a day get the adrenaline rush in the morning and um see some bad guys and girls put away um but it is re it is remembering and respecting the fact that the chief constable is responsible uh for the direction and control of the constabulary on a day-to-day -day basis and not meddling or attempting to interfere in that and I yeah. think if you have that, if you build and make the effort to build that relationship between a chief constable and a police and crime commissioner, that is where it then really starts to come into its own. Because yeah. I don't tell the chief 
how to conduct a drugs raid. Mm. In the same way, I don't expect the chief to tell me how to write a police and crime plan and yeah. to hold you know, to hold. The and certainly, the certainly historically, some of the more troublesome relationships between PCCs and chief constables have tended to be a bit of a generalization, but have tended to be those PCCs who were ex-cops, I suppose. Um, and certainly Ian Johnson described, you know, a very difficult relationship with his chief constable. Um, and uh, yeah, there is that sort of, you know, I know best kind of mentality because they start to maybe, I'm not saying this was the case with Ian. Uh, I've got the greatest respect for Ian as the ex-president um, uh, of the Police Superintendents Association, so highly respected in his own right. But there is always that risk, isn't there, that you've got someone who's a PCC who, who starts to straddle kind of both worlds, don't they? But in terms of party political stuff, um, to what extent, if at all, does Conservative Party um, headquarters start to expect you to do certain things or to do things in a particular way? To what extent is just party politics uh, in terms of the bigger machinery, political machinery, uh, impact on on you on, on your role? Um, it doesn't in terms of um, party politics, for example, in terms of CCHQ. CCHQ are, are very supportive around trying to get the good news of things that, that we are doing out, of course. I think you then have governments of different colours that will, you know, has obviously only been Conservative governments since PCC's brought in. And for example, the recent beating crime plan that was announced by the government, there's a lot of consultation with PCCs that goes in ahead of that around what do we need, what the challenges are, what are the extra powers. And yes, obviously, then the government wants to see its beating crime plan, its approach to crime fighting delivered and expects PCCs to be doing their part of that. Does that mean that we can push back or have conversations where we think we things aren't right or we, we want to do things differently? Absolutely, absolutely not. Um, for me, party politics comes into it when I'm running for election. Um, in terms of, um, and obviously not using the police as a, as a, as, you know, I was very, very keen when I got elected and throughout my election campaign to make it about what are the priorities for making Lancashire safer rather than politics then interfering in, in that operational policing environment. Um, mm. And I was very, very, really, really clear that I didn't want to go anywhere near that. So for me, um, it has the potential to, of course it does, um, in the same way that a government minister running a government department can fall out with their senior civil servants or feel pressure mm. to go a certain direction. But that is democracy to a certain degree, is mm. the fact that people are elected on a set of priorities that the public want to see delivered in the public services they pay for. Mm. Um, and that is a bad principle. From and when point. is your, when is the, I should know this, shouldn't I, but um, when is the, when do the next round of PCC elections? Uh, May 24. 24. So given that um, the Tory party, by any definition, are in a bit of a, a mess, frankly, and have been for the last you know, period of time for all the reasons that are well documented uh, in the wider media and the sort of the, the, the kind of the popular podcasts like, um, you know, the rest is politics and the, the, the news agents and all this kind of stuff is all I'm not going to rehearse all of those issues that, that are well, well known to everyone. Clearly, those issues that are national issues will have an impact on things like local elections, won't they? So people will vote, uh, protest vote um, in things like local elections. To what extent do you feel vulnerable being a Tory PCC to some of those wider issues playing out on a national level? 
I'd say no more or less than any local government elected. Effectively, PCCs are that. We are local government elected. And it is well documented in political cycles that, that you know, local government um, elections tend to end up being the punch bag for dissatisfaction with national governments. That's, that's well, well documented. What's quite interesting, though, is... Um, where we've seen devolution over the last 10 years, where you've seen that devolving of power and budgets to an individual, um, if that individual gets it right, um, they can effectively build a personal vote, which is what it is, a personal vote around what they are doing and the work they are doing. Prime examples, uh, and I'll use one from each political party, so this isn't about party politics. Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester won every single council ward in his last mayoral election, even the safest conservative wards in Greater Manchester voted for him as a Labour mayor. Um, ben Houchen, conservative mayor up in the northeast, um, again won a staggering proportion of the vote um, despite um, difficult sets of, of, of national circumstances because the public saw him as delivering what they wanted to be delivered for and being a champion for that region. Mm. And I think what you're seeing is with devolution, with PCCs, and what you're seeing potentially is that drift to um, basically looking, people then have an individual, a name to look at. If you're voting for a council, you're voting, yeah, your local councillor, you see lots of examples of local councillors booking the trend where they're really ingrained and involved in their local community of all party politics, mm -hmm. all parties. That, that power of that individual, and again, that goes back to where the PCC can really add value around being that convening power, being that person that can be the rallying flag in the local area to say, this is an issue, we need to get a grip of it. Mm. So, yeah, of course, you know, I benefited from the 2019 general election and, and, and the follow on from that. There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever if the political environment is more challenging nationally in, in 2024, that will be a, a factor in, in my election. But it'll be interesting to see, as you mentioned earlier, I do my best to be as visible as I can, being as honest and frank as I can, because I think, as I, as I, as I said to my office all the time, you never get cut through by being bland vanilla and just towing lines that people know are utter nonsense. Mm. Um, you get cut through by speaking truth yeah. um, and being quite open and honest. You know, like I like I picked out the degree on the entry. That was a policy of a previous Conservative government that I disagreed with. And I've been a very vocal and public champion against that. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the way that's the way that you do it. So quite a useful sort of segue then into you pick out the police degree issues. Um, not a bad way to just move sort of slightly across into the wider issues affecting policing, really. So, um, again, unless you've been living in a cave for the last two or three years um, or, or are just completely uninterested in, in, in policing, everyone knows what a torrid time policing has had over the last two or three years and and more particularly again you know without wanting as if i'm plugging my book but in my book i set out all of the reasons why i think policing has really struggled for the last uh, number of years and um, particularly since 2010 uh, with you know massive cuts under austerity and and arguably you know they just haven't recovered from that really where 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 are you, where is your head in terms of where you see policing nationally at the moment? 
I think nationally, um, it's really interesting, isn't it? If you look at public confidence in policing, the larger metropolitan forces tend to have lesser public confidence than the constabulary forces do. And that's interesting in itself. I'm a, I'm a huge believer, and I will answer the question. I'm not dodging the question at all. I'm just, just making it. Yeah, no, no, which is, I'm a huge believer in um, the Pelian principles that the, mm. you know, the police should be from and for the communities that they serve. The police are the public and the public are the police. That's very hard to deliver on a massive scale. Mm. Um, and I think Lancashire is probably in the sweet spot in terms of scale of force. So being able to be a large enough force to have a lot of the capabilities that a police force needs to have to do effective crime fighting and crime prevention, but still being still being of a size in which, if you can, you can be connected properly to the local communities that you serve. Still got a lot of work to do in that in Lancashire. And yes, austerity has played a fact in that. I, I would be cutting across everything that I said about being open, honest and frank if I said that austerity hadn't. But, you know, 2010, a Conservative government comes in with a piece of paper left from the former Labour Chief Secretary to the Treasury saying there's no money left. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that was the stark reality in 2010. Mm -hmm. And God forbid um, the state of the public finances that we'd gone, gone into and come out of COVID um, without having got the public finances into a better place. But that's an argument that's probably a very different podcast for a different mm -hmm. time to have. So, yeah, but that will, that, that, that will of course, and has had an effect. Um, mm -hmm. Some of it will have forced policing to think more innovatively and to think about the way it delivers services. I always say to people, particularly when I go around in different ways, is around um, policing is a business. It, it mm -hmm. delivers a policing service, but it has all the same organisational characteristics, problems and challenges that most other big organisations do that are delivering a service. Mm -hmm. IT, HR, um, all the all the issues around communication and engagement, around, around fleets, around infrastructure, around estates, all of the issues that policing face in those areas, which are effectively mm -hmm. about providing an efficient and effective service, mm -hmm. other industries have, 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 have managed to deploy technologies. And we were talking about it before in, in our preamble around are making sure that that policing is making the best use of that but of course those reductions in police numbers um, have had an impact and it, you know at the end of the day the police have to manage risk and threat i mm. completely get that and therefore mm. what is the easiest area to then cut back on is local community grassroots policing and mm. that's what we've seen and that's why i'm a big advocate of using the police uplift program and the officers that i'm recruiting through locally extra through the precept are really geared as much as we can to neighborhood um, policing, whether that be about stabilising response to reduce abstraction rates, but also building up those mm. local community police stations. Mm. I think there's also something about, um, obviously, public perception. So we live in a, an era of 24-7 media. We live in an era where, for quite some time, automatic trust in policing, automatic belief that the police are always right, has weighed quite a, quite a lot. And therefore, people view policing in a different way. So when you see police officers being exposed for sexual misconduct or, you know, corruption in public office or whatever it be, mm. it reflects on all of policing and it mm. gets so much more coverage through the media and through social media. On one mm. level, it's good because it's showing that the people are being rooted out. But it also, on another level, just reinforces views that people have that mm. can the police be trusted. And luckily, yeah. that is still a minority of the population, not a majority of the population. But it does it does damage that trust and yeah. confidence. In yeah, there's no doubt. I think, um, and I've certainly made this point many times on this podcast, that I think the issues in the Met tend to skew um, public opinion 
um, the, the, the mainstream media tend to latch on to a lot of those issues. And, and actually, you know, from, from someone who was a senior officer in the West Midlands, we didn't really experience many of those issues. And I think the, the public trust and confidence in policing in the West Midlands was actually very good. And I've got no reason to believe that it still isn't very good. I, so trying to unpick that which is uh, MET related and it's the, the, you've touched on yeah you've touched on a really good point which I was, I was which is why I made that point right at the start of the answer to this question which is public confidence is higher in other forces outside of those massive forces West mm. uh, West Midlands is a big force as well mm. what you tend to find is and you might you might disagree with me on this is you get national media that covers stories and there is there is a there is a there is a once you actually ask people and talk to people, you survey people, if you ask them about policing generally, then you, you tend to pick up some of those stories, some of the themes that come out of national media. If you ask them about their local police force, you tend to get a different response. And I think there is something about how policing as a sector as a whole is portrayed and is mm. felt, but yeah. then actually still the sentiment towards your local policing force. It's all right. You just froze for a little minute there. I'd said something ridiculous and you were no, just uh, No, no, it's fine. I can, I, can, I can edit out all that sort of those little glitches and things. It's not a problem. Uh, yeah, no, it was a really good point there. And it's what what what's interesting to me, and we'll we'll come on to talk about the Nicola Bully thing later on, but um what was interesting to me is that since all of those high-profile exposes in the Met, the media seem to be more frequently turning their gaze upon all of the other forces in the country. So, for example, you had your issues in Lancashire, and we'll talk about those in a bit. Um, the, uh, the couple who are now having been charged with the, um, I believe it's uh, manslaughter by gross neglect of the baby down in Sussex. That was an interesting one to watch the media descending on that story, um, albeit that the Met had a peripheral involvement in that. And then the, the more recent one for me in the last two or three days has been this uh, road traffic collision in South Wales involving the death of the three in the vehicle yeah. and two having been fine. And then the, the papers today starting to do what feels like generating uh, a lot of negative publicity about the fact that it took 48 hours to find that vehicle. So um, it's an interesting one that, the media um, now seem to be much more interested generally in, 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 in either real or perceived shortcomings in policing elsewhere. But anyway, we'll talk about that in a bit when we come to Nicola Bully. Um, so in terms of um, one of the big issues for anybody who's a, a sort of an observer of policing, and, um, you know, there's very few observers of policing who are more invested in it than I am, but... Um, uh, the issue around paying conditions, recruitment, retention, all of that kind of stuff is clearly a massive challenge nationally. We're, we're seeing um, really quite high attrition rates uh, for those, particularly those who are quite still young in service, etc. What, what are your views on all of that? What do you think needs to happen to try and keep people in the organisation sufficiently long that you get the investment that you've uh, you realise the investment you've put into them and that they then, for me, more importantly, actually become uh, highly skilled, highly experienced investigators for the future. Because my fear 
is that with so many people leaving either at the end of their service or mid-career for um, because of pain conditions, or for that matter, very young in service, we're going to have a future police service that is going to be very, uh, with great big gaps in terms of its experience. Yeah, I think, it, again, it's not you, the, the idea of the shift that someone joins one job and sticks with it for 30, 40 years and then draws their pension at the end of it, the erosion of that as a pattern of work, uh, particularly amongst younger generations, is not something that is unique to policing either. Mm-hmm. That is something that, you know, I remember reading an article in The, in the, um, in the Economist um, some time ago about, you know, the average amount of time people aged 20 to 30 stay in a job, and it was just over two years. People, people job hop um, to, get, um, to get where they want to in their career or wherever they are. And I think mm-hmm. part of the problem about making policing a graduate-only profession was it put it into a slightly different market and a slightly different lens as a career. Mm-hmm. And actually, what you need is people who want to become police officers because that's their calling, because that's the, the public service that they want to make, regardless of their qualification level. And excluding a whole section of society from becoming a police officer, one reduce the pool in which police, um, police, police, police constabularies and, and metropolitan forces were fishing in for their candidates, but it also changed the dynamic of the role and the market it was competing in, um, and, and that was just one of a number of reasons. Whilst why I thought it it, it was a bad idea. Paying conditions is part of it, absolutely. I was supportive of the 5% rise last year and the way it was staggered, particularly to to, uh, to, to lower end grades to make it a more competitive entry point and make that that journey onwards. That needs, I do think that needs to continue. There needs to be that continued uplift uh, um, in pay. Obviously needs to be conversation around how that's funded because I can't afford 5% next year out of my budget. Um, so, so, so that, but that, that conversation does need to happen. Completely, completely mm. agree with that in terms of um, pay rise, and I'd be supportive of of, 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 of of decent pay rises next year as well. Well, this coming year, um, I also think there is something about understanding why people choose policing as a career and then how you support them through that journey and how the career part of the problem about again like i said about making it degree only was you make it so more like a a professional career Mm. um that that comes with it progression which at the end of the day you know in lancashire how many how many officers are going to progress beyond the rank of constable Mm. actually a large majority of police officers that sign up on day one will still be a police constable 30 years down the line and yes the pay scales go up and up and it's a decent wage at the top end of it Mm. but at the same time you've got to really you've got to really make sure that you're recruiting people that understand that and because of the advertising well in you know five years you could be a sergeant earning this well the vast majority of police constables won't be Mm. Um, and actually, it's because you need to recruit people who want to be community-based or response-based police officers. Or they want to be detect- detect- detectives. Or detectives, you know, yeah. indeed. I mean, again, being completely open honest, I was I was a sceptic of um, direct entry into detectives based on a purely amateur level of information mm-hmm. and knowledge mm-hmm. when I, before I came into this role. And actually, I was talking to one of our inspectors, who I will say, I've, I've said this openly, he educated me mm. on why direct entry into detectives is really important, particularly in this day and age around attracting different people with different skill sets and different motives into those roles. Um, and yes, that's alongside other people making career changes within the constabulary. But actually, the way he t- talked me through what a det- you know 
when I first got elected, what a detective is, what they do. Um, it was really, really interesting and eye-opening. And again, that's what I try and maintain in my role is that open mind to listen to experts, to then use that in how I prioritise budgets, resources, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's that's part of that's part of the challenge is around how in this modern world do you attract people into a role in an honest way mm-hmm. that says we are recruiting for people who want to be police constables. Yeah, yeah. That's no, no I, I agree. And I suppose one of my great fears, and I would say this, wouldn't I, because I was a, I say a career detective, but I certainly spent um, most of my most of my career in investigative roles of one sort or another, uh, and certainly large parts of my career in, in counterterrorism. And, and my, my fear is that um, some of those some of those areas of policing that require many years deep subject matter knowledge and experience of working in serious crime and all of the all of the complexities of that it doesn't happen overnight you know you don't you don't yeah. you don't you don't um gain that experience in two minutes it takes many years and and, and many excuse my friends many fuck-ups along the way uh, before you learn through the school of hard knocks as to why things work uh, what is going to achieve a good outcome yeah. and what's going to achieve you looking like a complete idiot when it gets to crime court so so yeah um in terms of retain- again, i think because policing is policing and like you said that particular interest in it and because like you said there does remain a high level of confidence in the police and therefore the police are almost put on a pedestal and mm. actually in every industry i mean god i i, I remember the worst early years cock up I made in my career when I was back in the private industry and it taught me a lot of lessons but I wasn't being put up on a pedestal as a police officer who should be perfect holier than thou and know absolutely everything about everything from day one because you've got a warrant card and the power of arrest and I think there is something about that about you know allowing people to learn and grow in the job and Mm. having the right things work look if you make a mistake it was a genuine mistake then let's mm. learn from that. Let's let's and let's move on from that. As opposed mm. to someone made a mistake by not following the, the proper procedures, by mm. you know by by bad intent or whatever. That is different. There are two there are two mm. very different things there. And I mean I, I don't fully have the answer. I don't fully know. And it's why it's mm. good to have conversations like this with with very experienced people. Is mm. how in this modern era where policing is under a microscope, can people still you know still make mistakes? I go out and do public meetings and talk to community groups councillors mps all the time and people always bring up an incident to me of you know something like, it's just being honest because the police won't get it right every single time mm. that doesn't mean they're bad that doesn't mean they've mm. got bad intent that doesn't mean they're a, an appalling organization it just means that an individual in that organization did not respond to that incident as mm. would have been expected yeah, and yeah. let's look into that and understand why yeah um just before i move into i want to talk about um police technology because i know you've got quite a key role in that nationally um but before we do just to touch on the uh, the issue around the massive drain on police time and resources that is mental health and responding to mental health crisis in the community um what are your thoughts around that in terms of how do we turn that tap off how do we reduce the amount of time that officers are spending because it's having a massive and detrimental impact on their ability to do the things that I think the public expect them to do, i.e. solve crime. Absolutely. And it's, it's something that, um, so Chris, our Chief Constable, was um, was previously a different force where they'd rolled out right care, right person. And we brought that in in Lancashire at the minute, working with our partners, which is around, let's 
I always say it's more powerful to look at it through the lens of what's right for the victim slash patient. Mm-hmm. So if we if we approach this conversation purely through one about whose resources are being used for what and so what what detriment to the organization, then I think that's where that's where silos develop. That's where organizations buff up against each other because you're talking about the organization, not the people you're supposed to be there to serve. So the way I have the conversations with people is let's take let's take Bedwatch as an example. So we know that if a police officer gets a mental health per, their patient, picks them up and takes them to hospital because they need to be um, assessed and they need medical attention for their mental health. Until they are signed over to the hospital, they remain the, the care, in the care of that police officer. So quite often, it's not—it's not—it's it's, it's not a, a, an unusual sight to see ten police cars parked outside a hospital, and they'll all be on bed watch, unvariably with mental health patients. That's a bad use of police resource, absolutely. And those police officers should be out on the streets um, fighting crime. But if you look at it from the other point of view, which is there is a mental health patient there in crisis who is effectively being you know being supervised slash you know almost kept in position by two police officers whilst they're waiting for their mental health treatment is that really what that patient needs at that moment in time to be being effectively under bed arrest by two Mm. police officers Mm. absolutely not is that going to make their mental health situation the crisis they're in at that moment in time worse invariably probably yes Therefore, the conversation about the whole system needs to be about what is right for that patient. And it is not a police officer putting on bed arrest in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more powerful. We go back to the role of PCCs. It is far more powerful as a convening force as a PCC to be really quite blunt and disruptive mm-hmm. than say, we're failing that individual. Sort all the organisational resource implications for each side, because mm-hmm. effectively, at the end of the day, it's coming out of the public purse. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing there is failing an individual. And probably making their mental health crisis far worse. So the PCC in uh, in Bedfordshire, as you as you know, um, Festus, he he's talking about actually cross charging um, local mental health services for the amount of time that police officers spend. I mean, what's your view? Do you think that's got any merit? We're already doing it in Lancashire, so oh, yeah. um, we're already um, charging a degree of overtime, so then we can put on additional shifts. That came out of that real pragmatic conversation with our local NHS trusts around them saying, we understand that they were quite open. We understand this isn't right. At the minute, we need to get more beds, more staff in to be able to deal with this. In the interim, they've still got the budgets and the money. I mean, at the end of the day, the NHS has been ring-fenced all the way through austerity. Um, if there's any public service that has that has continued to receive increased funding throughout the austerity years, it is the NHS and the funding is there. Mm. Um, so for me, it is very much about those pragmatic conversations to move it on. Because what we can't do is just suddenly start saying no. Mm. You can't just suddenly out of the blue start saying no, we're not dealing with this stuff that we've been dealing with for years and the rest of the system isn't ready for it. Mm. Because let's go back, there will be a person mm. in mental health crisis who could potentially end up losing their life as a result of yeah, that. Yeah, and the police will get blamed 100%. And the police will get blamed for it. Mm. So for me, it's about that really quite disruptive and honest conversations with partners about mm. We need to move away from this. I think that the government's move on this and the announcements recently will help as well in terms of we need the national push on this as well. That it just needs to be really clear that the police are not a mental health service. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Listen, um, conscious of time, so I just want to move across into the the data and digital roles. So just describe what that is. And you're you're leading from a PCC point of view in terms of, of digital. Is that right? 
Yeah, so I work closely with Joel Farrell, who is um, Chief Constable for Durham, but he's also the NPCC lead for DDAX, as it's um, another acronym. Though that's a load of whole host of acronyms since becoming the national. I've only just mm. got my head around the constabulary-based ones, which is digital data and technology. And again, it mirrors the Chief Constable Commissioner relationship at a constabulary level, which is that Joe Farrell is the lead for NPCC. Her mm. job is to make sure that the, the, the technology, the use of data and digital capabilities is fit for purpose for policing and moving policing forward in terms of operational deployment. Mm. PCCs are there for budgets, for setting priorities, for commissioning, etc. So that's where my role predominantly comes in. So I sit on the Home Office Change and Strategic Investment Board. I sit... Um, I sit on the, on the commissioning board in the, for the public safety portfolio in the Home Office. And my job is around um, effectively scrutinising the efficient and effective delivery of national technology programmes, that it's meeting the priorities that we want to set out. And to be honest, providing a level of scrutiny around um, the performance of those national programmes. And also I sit on the board of the Police Digital Service and others and around what is the right delivery method mm. for technology services into policing. Uh, and having those conversations at a national level. So I ask a lot of awkward questions, um, and as you can imagine, and, um, and, and, and push back quite a bit on, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic around the idea that th there, are some force, there are some systems and some technology capabilities that have to happen this way. But the idea that we can go from a 43 force model to a one national model in one go, despite all of the different commercial contracting complexities, the system complexities, the data complexities that will sit around those 43 force models, let alone vested interest, and move to one national model of an in-house built bespoke system for as a solution for every time a technology problem comes up, yeah. I don't think is always the right way to do it. And yeah. you're probably better off. I'm a big believer in regional collaborations, and then you can potentially move to a national solution beyond that. It is easier to corral six, seven, eight forces than it is 43 in one go. There are some national capabilities that already exist that are just about replacing national capabilities. And there will be some areas where it is easier to do that. But this continuous obsession of commissioning huge national projects mm. Mm. to then try and move or migrate 43 forces across in one go. I think is part of the problem. Is a reason why I'm not saying anything out of turn here. There's a reason why so many national programs are over budget and not delivering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's got a very policing's got a very unhappy um, history or unhappy relationship with technology. And um, and I mean, I think it's important to sort of break break down the you know th that which is. A national program such as the replacement for the police national database or the replacement for PNC or the emergency services communications program, which is massively over over budget and uh, over, mentioning that over time. <laughs> so I don't want to spoil your day by talking about I think those are well documented. I think the the issue for me, I think, is that the certain parts of policing that have been left behind and neglected because too much time and money has been pumped into some of these i would describe them probably more as vanity vanity projects uh, which have which have delivered very very little um cost a great deal of money you get uh, the big consultancies jumping on and you seeing seeing these as as just a a revenue raising uh, you can see that in the recent CMA ruling around um, around around Airwave and exercise. Um, I won't name any names, but we all know who they are. Um, and and I think there's definitely something there around 
the the bit for me that's missing, which I think I t- talked to you um, before we started the podcast, uh, is 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 around crime investigation. I think in digital evidence mix up something like something like ninety five percent of all crime has some element of digital evidence involved in it. And where I think who, the people who I think have been really neglected in all of this have been frontline officers, investigators, um, you know, old school, and whether it's CID officers or whether it's public protection or whatever it is, these are the people who are really, really struggling. Um, what are your thoughts around uh, the forty-three force procurement model? I think from so so I can now, I can now speak from the position of a of a tech supplier as well as an ex-cop and some of the issues that I had to deal with whenever I was serving I used to get so frustrated with intransigent IT departments um, times 43 intransigent information security professionals who were hugely risk averse and and would give you any answer you wanted as long as it was no um, particularly when it came to data sharing. Um, yeah. so, so when I was the project manager for the National Data Analytics Solution, NDAS, um, we had a strategic uh, commitment from something like six or seven forces to share data with the project, and ultimately we only got data from two. Um, so you've got this, uh, you've got 43 times procurement who have got a different view of the world depending on where they are and the level of understanding and knowledge around um, technology because uh, some procurement departments are more comfortable procuring equipment for example than they are with technology so you've got this really so if you think about the 43 force model really messy really confusing I mean is there is there a solution to that is there some way that that we can make the whole process of particularly around innovation uh, in technology, we can make the whole process a bit slicker because, and I'm going to be really honest here, I don't see police digital service actually significantly impacting that conversation at the moment. My, my own, you know, experiences haven't been hugely, I haven't been hugely impressed, quite frankly. I'm sorry, PDS, but I haven't been. A lot of people say it, a lot of suppliers are saying it, a lot of suppliers are saying they actively avoid PDS because everything slows right down to a snail's pace. So I've said a lot there, but you know, what are your what are, what are your kind of views on all of that? So it's it comes down to, and again, without sounding like a broken record, other industries and other sectors have this these same challenges and uh, you know particularly where organizations are reliant on their customers and their repeat custom who can go elsewhere tend to get innovation and digital and data technology a lot better than organizations and sectors whose uh, customers or service users can't go anywhere else and, and have to just use the systems that are available if if amazon's approach to customer contact in terms of innovation, digital technology, all of that kind of stuff, was the same as the police forces. They'd be bankrupt by now. Um, If I had to wait 45 minutes to speak to someone at Amazon every time I wanted to do something, then we'd be in serious serious trouble as a business. The whole thing and the way it works is everything can be done at one click. Everything Everything is the whole service delivery, the whole customer experience is digitally and data enabled to provide 
as slick and as easy access for their customers so they don't go elsewhere because they are just the easiest people to contact and to use and to do business with. Mm. And policing needs to get its head around that. Some of that will come from, and it will have to be, and we will just have to live with to a degree that some of it will be messy. Innovation by its very nature is disruptive and messy. Um, and therefore, actually, some of the best innovation will come at grassroots level where police forces get their teeth into something and want to deliver an improvement or an innovation and work with a supplier or an individual or whatever to deliver that. At a national level, procurement and the ease of being able to work with smaller enterprises as well as just massive companies is where I think there is an awful lot of work to be done. I, like I said, I sit on the PDS board. Do PDS think they are a mature organization that is completely developed and got the right model and delivering it in the right way yet. Absolutely not. You speak to Ian Bell, you speak to the senior team at PDS, they know they are a very new company that is still trying to, it's still building its structure and its capable capacity to be able to operate as the police digital service. If you were being um, ungenerous, you would say that this is a circle that has just completely gone round um, from the old police ICT company mm. but then regardless of that we are where we are and um and, and that is developing and that, that is something you know conversations you're not the first person to say that to me and that they're conversations that that I, that I will have um, and continue to have with PDS blue light commercial is the other elements of this mm. um and again that's that's probably one for a different conversation I was having a conversation with um the chief executive blue light commercial week before last looking at how they can better support uh, national framework procurement for, for for the for the broader police technology spend um, because it's about nine hundred million pounds a year across the whole of policing and you know effectively commercial savings and innovation being driven mm. um, in a coordinated way is very minimal in that nine hundred million pound spend. The other bit that you touched upon is data sharing, and um, this is a bit and, and data more generally. Policing technology and digital capability is only as good as the data that goes into it and moves through it. Um, often in the in the landscape that we're living, we talked an awful lot in this podcast so far about cross-agency working, partnership working, PCC's roles as, as, as convening powers. There's a big piece of work that we're doing in Lancashire and the violence reduction network around getting around upfront the data sharing issues you know the worst thing that they called it was the data protection law because it makes it makes dpo's data protection officers just like that as in no it's our data mm. we've got to protect it by law it mm. should be called the data sharing agreement it should have been mm. pitched much more about this is about ensuring the proper ethical and and done with integrity way of sharing data between organizations about individuals to protect the rights and privacy of individuals it should not have been pitched as a protection law to prevent the distribute the, the, the sharing uh, of data because data is the area in terms of where we're going to make massive advances in policing in terms of looking at those issues around mental health or looking at the repeat service users and the people who are in and out of the criminal justice system about really understanding which agency should be hold, should be accountable for that individual, but what is every other agency's interaction and responsibility. The only way we're gonna make those big headways is through effective data sharing between organizations and having the digital capabilities to be able to do something with that in an automated way. Mm. There's some work that we're doing in Lancashire on that. The other example, which I'll come back to, which talked about kind of like front end contact with the public, two way conversation enabled, digitally enabled two way conversation between the public and the police. 
it's it's it barely exists yeah and again there's there's a there's a project we're working on in lancashire on that because it's something i'm particularly passionate about Mm. and something that's picked up so i think you ian have have, have nailed it in what you've said which is there's been a lot of big projects in policing technology and don't get me wrong some of them need to happen um Mm. and some of them are invariably expensive um and you know luke and the team in the public safety portfolio at the home office uh, we've noticed over the last 18 months to a real increase in the amount of transparency and openness the home office are having about the projects and the spends and it's great Mm. that i'm on those boards now along with other people from the policing sector like joe to have those conversations with the home office about what is the right delivery mechanism for them Mm. but i think like you said what's been lost in all of this is is actually there's the technology but here is data here is innovation here Mm. is we can make technologies one of my biggest bugbears and again i understand like a broken record it's not specific to policing is make implementing new technology and then making it hard for the front end users to 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 use it so actually you've got a really new interesting capability which could be transformational for an organization we made it that hard for the front end user to operate it or understand it that it's Mm. never going to meet its proper capability um in, in implementation um, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done around that. Brilliant. Okay. Um, yeah, I suppose my, before we move on, just to the very final thing, we'll talk about the nickel bully thing, but, you know, I think my, my, I think policing from my own, my own perspective, I think policing needs to break, start, start breaking away from some of these big systems integrator companies, the big four consultancies who are charging eye-watering consultancy fees to tell you what you already know. Um, and, you know, I, my own experience is that we've got some really talented people in policing um, who, who are very capable of, of um, working out what they need. Um, they do need some external help, definitely. Um, but I'm not. But I think by defaulting continuously to these sort of big four, um, you know, we know who we're talking about is uh, is uh, is not, in my view, providing good value for money. But um, just to move on just a final just a final final um issue really just w- want to talk about so obviously you've, you've been through a really torrid time of it haven't you in lancashire over the last um you know few weeks um you know caveated with uh, it's a it's a it's a tragedy t- for nicola bully's family um and i don't think anyone for one moment uh, wants to sort of you know, play weeping violins for policing at a time when someone has lost their their partner and their their mother. So that that sort of supersedes anything else. I'm just about to say, but clearly it has been a difficult time for Lancashire Police, and, and I don't want to step on the toes or uh, compromise you in terms of I know there's going to be an independent review into uh, Lancashire Police handling of the Nicola Bully case, but just describe to me what that period was like in the force because i imagine it must and probably still is feeling i imagine people are still feeling quite raw about the whole thing yeah i mean obviously as you said thoughts are with um nicholas family friends and also local community because actually st michael's was descended upon by not just the media and social media but by all the TikTok amateur detectives and even a small tourism industry that seemed to develop around going for selfies at the bench where Nicola had gone missing, which is in such, I can't even begin to describe what bad taste that is in. And that local community goes back to some of the conversations we've already had, Ian, is about actually the cooperation between the police and the local community was resilient, strong all the way through. 
And, you know, I was asked about this on BBC Radio Lancashire only yesterday. And, you know, they said, what did I have to say to the local community? My response was thank you for supporting and wrapping around family and friends and cooperating with the police. And it goes to show, like I said, that on the grassroots at that local level, if the police get it right, the communities are with them. Um, and I think that that's a really important point to make. We've talked about the different cases that are happening at the moment in the media spotlight. It feels like the national media spotlight is like a tornado that just moves around the policing sector. And then you find yourself in the eye of the storm and it, it's horrific in the moment and you're eye in the storm and it's so intense. And then it moves on and it's gone. Mm. And the sky's clear and there's still all the issues and everything, but the storm has gone. Mm. And you're just looking at the destruction and damage that is caused around mm. you thinking, what on earth was that about? Mm -hmm. um, and I think to a degree, um, that's what a lot of people feel like. And again, without saying I've got record, that's that's not unusual for different sectors as well who face who face, you know who face those challenges when 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 they happen. And for me, yeah, it is raw for a lot of the constabulary. And the, the, the constabulary are very open. You know, they have proactively referred themselves to the IOPC and to the ICO um, around the data sharing and around the visit that the officer made in January as part of a multi-agency vehicle. And I think, you know, for a lot of the officers involved, a lot of, you know, those people working on that core investigation, their lead hypothesis, sadly, proved to be correct all the way along. Mm. The, I had daily briefings at the peak of it. The level of accuracy at which they were predicting things would happen, and I don't want to go into the grotesque details mm. of that, mm. but the level of accuracy they were predicting things would happen through to, you know, the, the, the river the river tidal flows what that would mean very sadly if there was a body in the river where mm. it would move to when it would likely be discovered were mm. all correct all the way along mm. through the day mm. and you've seen that so you've got detectives and police staff and officers who have been working around the clock on a major missing person search and also working on other missing person searches mm. I mean, it, it was not lost on a lot of people that there were other people missing in Lancashire at the same time, missing from home for a period of time, some of them with vulnerabilities that were missing at the same time that there was no media interest in whatsoever. Mm. And, and that shows the way that a story can become sensationalised so very quickly. Much of the intrusion and the tragedy and the sad for the family who had to en endure all of this whilst having that media intrusion which which which, which they they rightly referred to about for me um that was really bruising for the team um and you know i've been to meet them in person not with any cameras not a photo opportunity just to go and meet them and talk to them um because mm. actually that's important to do mm. um but that all said it is not it is not unreasonable to say that the police lost control of the narrative Mm. Um, in a missing, what was a missing from a home search, the police lost control of the narrative at various points, and a vacuum of information was allowed to develop at certain mm. points. And lessons learned for policing, which this review needs to look at, is how, in a search like this, that is going to take a period of time, which was known early on, it was going to take a period of time because of the nature of of the, of the water and the search and the, and the vastness of it. How do you feed, or not feed, but how do you deal with that unsatiable, unexhaustible desire for continuous new information, mm. the 24-7 mm. media and the social media one? How do you deal with the prevalence now of amateur detectives on TikTok that, that, you know, we had national papers 
printing stories based on TikTok detectives that had already been disproven by the police. And they were printing that information over what the police were saying was fact. Mm, yeah. And, you know, how do we deal with that? Leveson inquiry, I think, has got a lot to answer for in terms of unintended consequences about the relationship between the police and the media and the yeah. ability to be able to sit down and informally talk to trusted members of the media and say, mm. look, this is the case. We can't, we can't report this at this moment in time, yeah. but this is what is happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, whether some, some of the media would listen to that, I don't know, but that's mm. why we've commissioned the review, because I don't have all the answers. Lancashire Constabulary don't have all the answers. Yeah. So for me, the review's taking three strands. One is, whilst the police investigation was right all the way Sorry, along. Sorry, who's actually leading that review then? Uh, the College of Policing. Right. Okay. So they're the national standard setting mm. body. They have the mm. National Underwater Search Centre. They seemed the, the most logical people mm. to take an external view and, and pull in resources. So number one is to have a look at that search and investigation and, you know, look at the decision logs. Did the police make the right decisions and the right calls based on the right evidence at the right time? Secondly, there was the big um, area where the narrative really shifted in the public around the release of the personal information around, around Nicola. That's with the Information Commissioner's Office for now. So we, we will wait and see the outcome of the Information Commissioner's Office and that will feed into the, to the review. And then the third area is around communication, engagement uh, and the media. And there's got to be lessons learned from national policing around how this became an international sensationalised story. Um, and how the narrative was so lost um, and how the police key messages were not getting through. Um, and that yeah, it's a really, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because I totally agree that the, the people who are best placed to do that review will be the College of Policing in terms of the, the expertise that they can leverage because you can't just give that type of inquiry to anyone. It needs to be given to, yeah. to people who understand what they're doing. But the problem of recognised body. I think that's the important bit as the well. Problem, the problem, of course, with that, as you know, is that um, if it comes back with a broadly supportive um, outcome, then it'll be, oh, well, there you go. There's a surprise for you. The police, um, you know, investigating the police, you know. So it, it's kind of like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, isn't it, really? But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think you'd have to have had a heart of stone not to have feel, felt for um, Rebecca Smith, you know, that particularly. Appalling. Oh, that was, I'm sorry, I know, you may have seen the Daily Mail, I mean, the Daily Mail ran an attack, so I called the Daily Mail out for their such bad taste. One of their journalists put a tweet out with a picture of Becky at, um, at, the, um, at, the, at the, the, the press conference and said, show some respect to a dead mother, you wear a uniform, what do you think this is, auditions for middle-aged Love Island. I mean, no, really how on earth is that is relevant to the search for Nicola mm. is beyond me. And then, yeah. lo and behold, a few days later, um, they, the Daily Mail went through my personal social media accounts and ran an attack piece on me because I cooked a meal for my wife on her birthday and took my nine-month-old son to the supermarket. And they put a picture of my nine-month-old son in the Daily Mail really? as an, attack, as an really? attack piece against me well. because clearly... I shouldn't have had to continue to have. Well, they're just they're just bullies, aren't they? And I've been very, very, I've been very clear in, in my podcast about how I feel about the Daily Mail. They, they just, uh, for whatever reasons, best known to themselves, um, they they've got a hatred of policing. Have had for years and years. No idea what they see, what they sort of hope to achieve by that. But um, if, they possibly, you know, if, if if they channeled that into something constructive, mm. then fine. But what on earth does my wife's birthday have to do with the search for Nicola Blue? It doesn't. It, because it was a sensationalised story that would generate clicks and make people angry. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the way that they bend you. What does 
Becky Smith tried some very smart office wear, in my yeah. opinion, yeah, had yeah. to do with finding Nicola. Yeah. Zero, zero, zero. You know. And I think one of the, the lessons, I mean, it's probably not lessons learned for the review, but it's one of those things is when senior people, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a politician, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to, I'm a thick-skinned politician, I'm used to having people pick on me or mm. attack pieces out against me or twist bits of information to make it look like something completely different to have a go. That, that's part and parcel of being in the public spotlight. But when you're putting people like mm. Superintendent Becky Smith out into the, to do a press conference, mm. yes, you might expect, we do not live in a, in a police state. There will be legitimate criticism and questioning around police investigations, conduct, all of that. No one is no one is questioning that. But if Becky goes in to do a press conference about, mm. about a missing persons investigation in a smart office wear dress, mm. and her appearance and her age and her gender become the subject of attack articles, mm. then how are police forces making sure? that they are making their lead investigating officers, their SIOs and their press spokespeople mm. resilient to the fact that if you put yourself in that position now, you will yeah. get attacked for your age, looks, mm. gender, yeah. not necessarily yeah. the actual stage. Well, it was it was quite it was quite um ironic, wasn't it, given that policing has been uh, labeled as in, has been institutionally misogynistic to then have a have an article like that. Um but Absolutely. listen, listen, Andrew uh, Conscious of the time, you're a busy man. Um, we're sort of we're about an hour and a quarter now, so it's probably not a bad time just to sort of wrap it up. But listen, we've covered such a lot of ground there, haven't we? Um, uh, really, really fascinating. Really, I over, that's my most overused word on this podcast. Fascinating, but it but it is fascinating to chat to someone like you who comes at things from a very different perspective to many of our other guests. Um, and it's really interesting to sort of get an insight into your thinking and into your world. So. Thanks ever so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and chat. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, and who knows, we we may cross paths in the digital and data world. Um, Absolutely. At some point. Um, yeah, I'd be very happy to have a chat with you offline about all of that stuff. But I, I've got to be careful because I, I, I would come across as blatantly um, a blatant sort of pitch for our technology, wouldn't it? So. <laughs> My LinkedIn inbox is full of blatant pitches on an almost daily basis. Oh, so God. Oh, I definitely it's not something I'm, I'm, I'm unused to. No, but it has, it has been really interesting. It's good, and it is good to talk and reflect. And, you know, sometimes it, just taking that time out to stop the continuous mm. back-to-back meetings and actually talk and reflect is actually yeah. really interesting. And I hope I've lived up to my promise not to yeah. be or to be um, or to try and hide behind um, corporate lines. Yeah. You know, no, I really, uh, really appreciate your uh, your your candid approach to this um, conversation. And and well done you, well done you for being such a great advocate for policing and such a great standard bearer. And I think you've you've managed to walk that line really, really well between on one hand being uh, holding policing to account whilst at the same time being unbelievably supportive. So thank you for that. Pleasure. Thank you. Listen, you have a good day. And um, I shall uh, let you know uh, when the podcast is going out. I'll ping, you, uh, I'll ping yeah. you a message via LinkedIn. That'll be great. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ian. Have you a good take day. care. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, exactly. Bye-bye. Street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. 
But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>